Tonight we're going to continue with our sermon mini-series on the Lord's Church, the Church of Christ, as seen in Scripture. just want everybody to know that uh, we now have a link, have had one for some time from the Shoto Hills website to a SoundCloud account where all of these sermons are posted. You can still get CDs of them, and I appreciate those of you that want them to either restudy or to give to somebody else, but by all means, uh, those are available, but the website is also available. You can send somebody a link if you wanted to who needs to learn about some of these things. The Wednesday evening prior to us going to Green Valley, I had the distinct privilege a week and a half ago of going to the Wednesday night summer series at the Northwest Church of Christ in Fort Worth, Texas. Their summer series theme this year was answering those who ask us. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. That was the entire theme. But they had specific questions. Answering those who ask us what? My assigned topic was answering those who ask us, is your church the only one going to heaven? As I told them, there are a few topics that are as near and dear to my heart as evangelism is. And so I was very excited by their theme as they talked about how to answer people's questions when they ask us. And I was also very pleased with the topic that I was assigned. In fact, this was the very first topic that I addressed in my book, Effective Everyday Evangelism, the second chapter of which is entitled, The Only Ones Going to Heaven? Now I want to stress as we begin that the one lone, true, biblical answer to that question is a very simple, very logical, very straightforward and easy to understand one. And that while we as members of the Lord's One New Testament Church understand or should how the Bible answers that question, that our single greatest challenge is not the answer to the question. Our single greatest challenge in today's politically correct, all-inclusive, anything goes except telling somebody they're wrong society, is that we must find the most creative, positive, productive, intriguing and non-offensive way to share with them that one very exclusive, very narrow-minded, very prohibitive and uncompromised biblical truth answer. That is our challenge. We need to learn to give them that simple answer in such a way as not only to not offend them, if possible, but in such a way as to actually create within them the desire to get into the scriptures for themselves and study with us to discover what God said again for themselves. We need to be like those folks in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32 who had an understanding of the times. We need to understand again the times that we live in. Let me re review this one more time. It's not the answer to the question that is difficult. It's finding a way to answer that question in a way that causes them to want to study it further. Our single greatest challenge is to do that. 
in a way that they want to get into the scriptures for themselves with us instead of turning them off long before we have a chance to go any further. That's our challenge. And as I stopped and thought about that, isn't that exactly what the point of their theme verse, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 is? Turn to that verse. I believe that this is reflected in their summer series theme verse and the one that follows. Because 1 Peter 3.15 doesn't just say give an answer. That's not the end of the text. That's not where the, the sentence in the text stops. Look with me in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Sanctify means set him apart. Set him apart in this case as Lord and King. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's where we usually stop. But that is not where the sentence, the sentiment, the context stops. There's not a period there in the start of a new book. There's a comma. It's how we answer the question that is as important. How we come across as we answer the question is every bit as important as the answer to the question. Look what he says. Be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. With meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Meekness, fear, a good conscience. So that after we've answered the question and we walk away from that situation even a week or a month later, we're happy with the way that we came across when we answered that question. We didn't bully, we didn't get in anybody's face. Isn't this presentation just as important so as not to have people just shut off the switches? You know, Peter's not the only one that said this. Look in the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Look what Paul said. 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. Verses 24 through 26 are so important, so crucial, so critical. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility correcting those who are in opposition. Look at those words. Gentle, patient, humbly correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Notice God doesn't say don't tell them the truth. God says they don't want them to know the truth. But you must tell them in a way that is humble and gentle. That's how the presentation must be. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. The number one thing we have to remember is we're not trying to win an argument. God's already won the argument. We're not trying to win an argument. We are sincerely seeking to win a soul to Jesus Christ. Therefore, approach makes all the difference. That having been said, though, let us go back and, and start with this. One of the things that strikes me about that question, is your church the only one going to heaven? Often it's asked with sarcasm or maybe with intentions that are less than we would like for them to be. But one of the first things that strikes me about that question 
is how incredibly simple and obvious the answer is in the scriptures. And having said that, not that I'm trying to be harsh, but consider with me for just a moment how much even the phraseology of that question itself betrays somewhat of a lack of biblical knowledge on the part of the person who would ask it. The answer is pretty simple in the scriptures. It's pretty straightforward. And hence, those who would ask such a question betray that they really don't know their Bibles all that well because the answer is pretty simple and straightforward. Consider with me this. First off, when they ask the question, is your church the only one going to heaven? Brethren, I don't have a church. I do not have a church. Well, Shoto Hills is your church. No, it's not. I do not have a church. The church is not mine. The church does not belong to me. I did not shed my blood and pay for the church, and even if I had it, there wouldn't be one because I can't even save myself. The church is not mine. I did not shed my blood for it, but God did. He came in the flesh, and he shed his blood for his church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. God came in the flesh and shed his blood for his one New Testament church, which was the Old Testament prophesied kingdom which Jesus came and was born to establish and reign over. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. God came in the flesh and he shed his blood for his one New Testament church or kingdom, which he promised to build in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. For his one New Testament church or kingdom, which Peter opened up on the day of Pentecost, in accordance with the divine promise that Jesus had made in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. I don't have a church. I didn't shed my blood for any people, but God did. He came and shed his blood for his one New Testament church or kingdom, which is his one and only spiritual body, Ephesians 1, verse 23 and Ephesians 4 and verse 4. He came and shed his blood for his New Testament church or kingdom or body over which he and he alone is the one and only head and the one and only king. Ephesians 1, 22 and 3. 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. God came in the flesh, shed his blood for his church his one New Testament blood-bought church, which was the crowning achievement of God's eternal plan and purpose that was put in place before time began and accomplished once and for all in Christ Jesus our Lord, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. He came and he shed his blood for his one New Testament called-out group of saved people, which carries, honors, reverences and is referred to by only his holy name for there is no salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12. That's why we are referred to congregations individually as the churches of Christ in Romans chapter 16 and verse 16. God came in the flesh and he shed his blood for his church, his one New Testament church, which all of his first century disciples were added to upon their repentance and baptism, specifically for the forgiveness of their sins, Acts 2, verses 37 through 47, just as Emily did this morning. He came and shed his blood for his one pre-denominational New Testament church or body or group of saved people, which all of his hand-picked apostles, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, worked and worshiped in from the time of its establishment on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 until the end of their earthly lives. Centuries, centuries before the first departure from the faith once delivered for all the saints ever happened, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 and Jude 3. And he did it centuries before the first man-made division or denomination ever came into existence, 1 Corinthians 1.10. So we see that the first critical flaw in that question, is your church the only one going to heaven? The first critical flaw in that question is the way the question itself is phrased. It's like the question, do you still beat your wife? No matter how you answer that, you can't win. It's a setup from day one. This question, as posed, conveys a lack of biblical understanding as to exactly what the Lord's church is and as to exactly whose the Lord's church is. Listen, the Greek word that's translated in our Bibles as church is ekklesia. E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, ecclesia. And what ecclesia means simply by itself is the called out. That's what it means. Ecclesia is a compound Greek word. It means those who have been called out, called out of. That's what it means. By itself, it's used that way. Okay? But think of this. Therefore, because ecclesia, church, means called out, the church is the called out, as we, we see in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and the saints are the called out. Hence, the church of Christ is the called out of Christ. The church of Christ is the saved of Christ. Well, how are they Christ-saved people? Because they have been called out, ecclesia, they have been called out of a wrong relationship with God by the gospel, they've obeyed the gospel and they've come into a right relationship with God. So the church of Christ is the called out of Christ, is the saved of Christ. This same church of Christ is also called the body of Christ in the scriptures, Colossians 1.18 and 24. This is the church, the body, be called out the saved group of people to which I was added by God upon my repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins in 1985. This church is not mine. This church is Jesus Christ. Neither does this 
church that's called out the saved group or body of people that we are all so privileged to be a part of if we have obeyed the gospel and been added by God to his son's church, Acts 2, verses 37 through 47. Neither does this particular church belong to, honor, or follow the teachings and commandments of any man. We don't follow the teachings and commandments or wear the name of the Pope, Martin Luther, John the Baptist, John Wycliffe, John Calvin, John Knox, Robert Brown, John Smith, John Wesley, Joseph Smith, William Miller, Charles Russell, or anybody else. We don't follow those men's teachings, and we don't wear their names because we understand that we have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and therefore we wear Christ's name. We don't wear anybody else's name other than the one and only holy name that the church was meant to glorify. We wear the name of our king. We wear the name of our head. We wear the name of Christ, to whom we give preeminence over all the others. Just as Colossians 1.18 says we must. We are the church of Christ. The church I am so blessed to be a member of is not my church, it's his church. He bought it, he paid for it, belongs to him. That's why congregations of it are called the churches of Christ, right in the Bible. It's what they've been called since the first century. And so having us having understood that, the question you can understand would be a lot better phrased if people understood all these things that have taken all this time to cover. The question would be much better phrased and the answer would be much more quickly obvious to even the least biblically knowledgeable folks if the question were phrased better and more accurately. In other words, if the question were phrased like this, is Christ's church, those who are the called out of Jesus Christ's, the saved group or body of people bought by Jesus Christ, that belong to Jesus Christ, the churches of Christ, is, are they the only group going to heaven? Now, if the question was phrased that way, wouldn't it be a lot easier to answer? Wouldn't the answer be more obvious, even if you didn't know much about the Bible? Of course it would. The only obvious, logical, biblical, legitimate answer to that question is yes. Listen, who else can save anybody on Judgment Day except Jesus Christ? Who else? Who else can save anybody on Judgment Day besides Jesus Christ? Nobody. Nobody. So, therefore, if Christ is the only one that can save anybody, who else can be saved besides Christ's saved group? Besides those saved by Christ himself, who else can be saved? Nobody. What are those people called? The churches of Christ. Who else's church or people or followers possibly can be saved since he is the only one that can save? Would Martin Luther's group of followers who give him and his teaching their love, loyalty, allegiance, and obedience, who wear his name, or those who wear the name of John the Baptist, or those who wear the name of anybody else, and they give their love, loyalty, and allegiance to some man, can they be saved based on that man? No, because Jesus is the only one that can save. And so we must be saved by Christ. And when we're saved by Christ, we become part of the saved of Christ, which is just another way of saying the church of 
Christ, so the church belonging to Christ. When I was down at Fort Worth a week and a half ago on Wednesday night, Karen and I stayed Wednesday night rather than driving home. We got Thursday morning and, and came home, and I made the point to those brethren down there in Fort Worth. I said, listen, when Karen and I, when, when I get up tomorrow morning and I get ready to leave Fort Worth and I head back home to Shuttle, Oklahoma, I'm taking one person with me. I'm taking my bride with me. I'm not taking your bride with me back to Oklahoma. That just would be wrong. When I go home, I'm taking my bride with me. Just that one. Nobody else. I am taking with me that woman who loves me, is loyal to me, who wears my name. She is my bride. I'm only taking my bride. I ain't taking yours. When Jesus Christ comes for his bride, his church to take home, he's not taking somebody else's bride. He's not taking somebody else's group of people that have pledged their love and loyalty and allegiance and obedience to some man that wears some man's name. He's going to take his bride, his church. Why would Jesus save and take home to heaven any group of people who belong to somebody else, who honored somebody else, who gave their love and loyalty to somebody else, who were, who were giving their love and loyalty to somebody else whose teachings completely contradicted his? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Think about it. He won't. Look at me in John 10. John 10, if you truly want to belong to Jesus, if you want to be in his saved group, then you've got to honor and reverence him. You've got to listen to him. Jesus said as much. You've got to do it his way, not some man's way that contradicts his way. John chapter 10, look what it says. In John chapter 10, look at verse 14 to begin with. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. It is my understanding that as Jesus taught this lesson out of John 10, that in those days, what would happen is there'd be many shepherds with many different flocks, and they'd take their shepherds up into the greener pastures and the hills during the day, but at night, they would come down into the towns, there'd be like this stone rock corral, for lack of a better term, where all of the different sheep from all of the different herds would be herded together there overnight to be safe from predators. And in the morning, each shepherd would go out and call his own sheep. And his own sheep would know his, his, the shepherd's voice, the one that they had been raised with. And they wouldn't go with some other shepherd, and that's kind of the context of John 10. They wouldn't follow somebody else. But Jesus said, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Mine know me. And so when the shepherd would come, he wouldn't lead everybody else's flock to greener pastures. He would only lead his flock to greener pastures. Look what he says about his sheep in verses 27 and 8. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Brethren, Jesus said his own sheep hear what he has to say, and they do what he has to say. And they're the only ones to whom he will, verse 28, give eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. By the way, verse 28 is not saying you cannot fall from grace. Jesus is saying nobody will be able to snatch my sheep who know me and listen to me and follow me out of my hand. Listen, if we spend our entire lives learning from Jesus and following him, we can't be snatched. Is that right? As long as we do that? It's exactly what he's talking about. Don't pull verse 28 out of the way from verse 27. Finally, in John chapter 14, look what else he says about this. In his loyalty to only his flock. 
to his flock which honors and reverences him and follows his teaching and know him as their shepherd and not somebody else in John 14 and verse 15. He says, If you love me, keep my commandments. Look down in verses 21 through 24 of this same chapter. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. There's the litmus test. Do you love Jesus? Takes more than a bumper sticker that says, I love Jesus. Takes more than a necktie that says, I love Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll follow me. Not some other man. Not somebody's teachings other than mine. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let's continue on in the next couple of verses. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Do you see the loyalty? Do you see the commitment? Do you see the connection? If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I'm not trying to be mean or anything else, but that is scripture. That is red and white. I'd say black and white. It's red and white in my Bible. Jesus said, if you love me, you won't be part of my flock. What proves the difference whether or not it's ours, whether or not you're willing to love me enough to obey me and give your loyalty and your allegiance and your obedience to me. Think about that. And again, I would simply ask this question. Having read all of this and seen it, and it's said in love, it's a compassionate thing. Do people need to know this? This means yes, this means no. Do people need to know this? Oh yeah, boy, do they ever. Why would Christ save and take home to heaven another group, another church, which did not love, honor, obey, reverence, or submit to his lordship and commandments on earth? Why would he do that? We don't love him enough here to want to be with him and do it his way. Why would we think he'd want us to try to go to heaven and do what we were unwilling to do here? Those who choose instead to give themselves and their allegiance to a salvation process, a worship pattern, and a church affiliation, which is never once seen in God's eternal plan, and in fact which contradicts God's eternal plan. Why would God do that? Now, once again, while we need to firmly understand this for ourselves, and while we need to share with people this point, if and when they grow to the point they can understand and accept it, probably shouldn't be the first thing we say. While we understand the truth of what I've said and we can see the scripture, and the answer is pretty simple. Probably shouldn't be the first thing to tell them. And here's what I mean by that. If we want them to truly seek the Bible themselves and, and be born again of the water of the Spirit, rise to walk in newness of life and become part of this church, then the understanding of how to best present this uncompromised truth is a life and death matter. Our little granddaughter, Hannah Raylan Weaver, Two months old, about. Her grandpa loves a good steak. So 
if I tried to feed her a good steak now, it would kill her. She's not equipped to handle steak. She's two months old. Can't chew it, it would choke her. And the reason I say that is because we need to understand that even though at some point in her life she'll probably love a good steak, or hopefully, right now she can't handle it. And so the meat of the word that I've already given you in this lesson is something that a lot of people can't digest just yet. They're not even, like, like Hannah's been born too much, they're not even born again yet. We can't even start down that road with a lot of folks because they can't handle it. We need to understand this concept of when we can feed meat and when we can't. Stop and think about it this way. For those of you who are parents and grandparents, four-year-old comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa, where do babies come from? Are you going to give them the full, all-out biological answer at four years old? No, you're not. Why? Because they aren't anywhere near equipped to handle it. Now, can you put an answer in terms they can understand and kind of come back to them on their level as best you know how? Not telling you to lie to them. Don't be dishonest with them. But you don't give them the full two-hour spiel on the biology that's involved, do you? And how much destruction could you do if you did to their little minds? A lot. Same is true with the spiritual meat of God's word that we've talked about tonight. The apostles the Apostle Peter and the writer of Hebrews both taught the same truth about milk versus meat in Hebrews 5, 12-14 and 1 Peter 2, 1-3. Jesus himself practiced this very principle in John chapter 16, verses 12-15, where he told his disciples, he said, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. But when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. What was Jesus' point? He told his disciples, he said, I got some meat that you guys really need to chew on. But I know right now you can't handle it. But later on when you can, I'll give it to you. And the fact is, we have to understand that people today who have been pre-programmed by decades of Satan's propaganda have a terribly rough time understanding and accepting the exclusive, one-way, narrow-mindedness, prohibitiveness of God's eternal plan and purpose. But God's always been this way. Do we understand God's always been very narrow-minded, exclusive in everything he's done? I'd like to go and read all these texts, but I don't have time, so just listen and take notes. In Genesis chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, Noah's in the ark. Can you imagine as the rains come up and some of those people, maybe mothers with new babies and all of that, just realizing what's going on and the door's been closed. But, but you know what? It was only those in the ark that were saved. Is that right? That's pretty exclusive, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. But why were they saved? This is the key. Because we read in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8, Genesis 6 and verse 22, and Genesis 7 and verse 5, that the reason those in the ark were saved is because Noah did exactly what God told him. God told Noah what to do, and Noah did exactly what God said to become one of those exclusive eight people. He did it God's way. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21 in the English Standard Version says a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's pretty exclusive. Consider with me this. 
Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 through 28. The last of the plagues, the firstborn is going to die in Egypt. But Moses told the people, he said, you, you kill the Passover lamb and you, you take some of that blood and you put it over your door passes, you put it over your doorpost. And when the Lord goes past, only those with blood over their door, only those with blood over their door will be saved. Is that pretty exclusive? Pretty narrow-minded? Pretty one-way? That's it. And it says in verse 28 of Exodus 12 that the people did exactly as Moses had commanded. And you know what happened? Only those, only those with blood over the door, the way God had commanded, were saved. Only those who had done it God's way. We see this exclusivity throughout the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, read the beginning there, those first six verses in Exodus 20 about the Ten Commandments. And look how exclusive God is. No other gods. I'm a jealous God. Don't make any graven images. I'm to be your only God. What happened when Moses came down off the mountain later on and the people made a golden calf? You remember what happened? God was not impressed. But God said, me only. And they said, no, we think we'll make a golden calf and worship it. You know the price they paid, don't you? From out in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 10, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, finally says to him, he would worship and serve only God. Only God. Nobody else. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's it. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? The only way that we get to God is through Jesus Christ, period. Period. There is no other way. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. There are no loopholes. There are no other ways to God except through Jesus Christ. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? Is it true? Yeah. People don't understand this today. What about Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, where it says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It starts off saying there's one body. In Ephesians 1, 22 and 3, he said the church is the body. So when he says there's one body, what does that mean? Well, if the church is the body, there's only one body, then there's only one church can't mean anything else. If Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, when he uses the word one, there's one body, if that word one means 3,000, then you've got to apply that to the rest of those verses when it says there's one Lord, there's 3,000 lords. There's one faith, well, there's 3,000 faiths. There's one God, well, there's 3,000 gods. You suppose God would put up with there being 3,000 gods in your life? No, there's one God. Well, if one means one and there's one God, and when he says there's one body, the body's the church, there's one church. So that brings us to this. How do we answer those who ask us, is your church the only one going to heaven? How do we answer that honestly, biblically, firmly and unflinchingly, yet humbly, meekly, and in a gentle and good conscience manner that makes them want to pursue it even further with us from the scriptures? I believe the answer to the question begins with a patience, a meekness, and a willingness to ask questions. To ask questions. Don't come back and say, well, yeah. They're not ready for that. If they're ready for that, they won't be asking the question to begin with. So we need to ask questions. Good teachers ask questions. We need to ask questions like Jesus did to get them to question their own convictions. We must remember our purpose is threefold in answering their questions. 
And you have some favorite punchlines at the very end. Our purpose is threefold in answering their question. Number one, we must never compromise the truth of God's word for anyone at any time for any reason. That's number one. We do not compromise. Number two, we must make every effort possible not to offend those who ask such questions to the point that we stifle further discussion before we can ever get them into the Bible with us. We must not do that. And thirdly, we must make them question their own convictions in such a way that they are ready to study more to make sure. With that thought in mind, I want to offer the following. It is a suggestion modeled on chapter 2 of Effective Everyday Evangelism. It's a discussion between two men. One of them is a member of the Lord's Church, and he's at work, and he's got a, a man there with very little Bible knowledge, but he's heard about the Church of Christ and thinking they're the only ones going to heaven and all that. So this non-Christian co-worker says to the member of the church, he says... Oh, you're a church goer. Christian says, yeah. He says, what church do you go to? I worship with the Church of Christ. And before the man, who's not a Christian, can even think about it, he said, oh, oh yeah, that's a bunch of believe they're the only ones going to heaven, right? How do you answer that? Try this. Actually, we probably don't believe too differently on that than you do. You want to get somebody's attention who's trying to be hostile? Oh, yeah, that's that bunch thinks they're the only ones going to heaven. You want to really just watch their jaw hit the floor, make a hole, and go to the basement? Here's how to do it. We probably don't believe too differently on that than you do. What's their obvious response to them? What do you mean? How so? And so here's some of the questions we need to ask. Well, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God and that only he can save you, like he said in John 14, 6? Most people that have any Bible knowledge at all will answer that yes. When they say, well, what do you mean you, you only believe, like you, you believe about the same as I do? I've heard different stories. Well, do you believe Jesus is the only avenue to God? Well, well yeah. We in Church of Christ believe that too. Next question. Okay. Do you believe that only those saved by the blood of Christ will be in heaven? What are most people going to say? They, well, well, yeah. Hmm. That's what we in the Church of Christ believe too, right? Only those saved by the blood of Christ will go in heaven. Third question. And do you believe that in order to go to heaven, one has to receive the gift of eternal life the way God's word says? Most people are going to say, well, yeah, I believe that. You know what we say? Hmm. That's what we in Church of Christ believe, too. Then here's the wrap-up. So let me get this straight, the church member says. Let me get this straight. You believe that we can only be saved by Jesus, we can only be saved by his blood, by receiving God's grace the way the Word of God says, right? That about sum up what you believe? He says the non-Christian, non-Christian. Yeah. Hmm. That's what we in the Church of Christ believe too, isn't it? Punchline. Do you know what the Bible says? The way we receive God's grace is. Do you know what the Bible actually says? The ways that we receive God's gift of grace. What those are. Because you see, then you got it. 
Because if they say, uh, well, I'm not too sure. Would you like to have a Bible study? And if they say, well, yeah, all you got to do is believe. You say, have you ever read John chapter, uh, James chapter 2, verses 19 to 24? Have you offended anybody? Have you turned off the switches? If you got them, maybe just peaked a little bit in their curiosity to the point where they might actually go home and crack the Bible to see what it says. What are we trying to do? How do we answer those people? I believe that's the best way to do it. Because I think sometimes that's not necessarily the answer that turns people off as much as it is their perception of the way we come across in answering. Jesus said in Matthew 11 and verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Yeah, we know the answer to the question, but we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to save a soul. There's a big difference. God's already won the argument. That's over. That's done. We need to be gentle and lowly in heart like Jesus in the way we present the answer. He said in, in Matthew 12, 20, it is declared of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus was gentle in giving his Did Jesus know all the answers? Could Jesus have said in response to some question, are you nuts? Did he? See, Jesus did not slam the woman at the well. He did not slam the woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus did not slam and berate Peter and the rest of the apostles even after their denials. But neither did Jesus Christ ever compromise one jot or tittle of anything God had ever said. He never compromised. But he knew how to present the truth incrementally in the most productive way possible as we've talked about from John 16, 12 through 15. Even the former Christian killer, Saul of Tarsus, learned how to do this. And Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, he did a little evangelizing himself too, didn't he? He says in Titus 3, 1 and 2, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. The way that we answer the question attitudinally is every inch as important as the truth we present incrementally. That's how you answer the question. May we all with humble hearts and concerned Christ-like minds understand we're not simply trying to win an argument, but that we are sincerely seeking to save a lost soul. May we, as Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 8 through 11 and 14 through 16, may we be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks your reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience. And when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. 
That's how you answer the question. A few verses after this, we see that same exclusive, prohibitive, narrow-minded truth of God on exhibition once again, as we've already talked about in 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21. When Noah built the ark, only eight souls were saved through water. It says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. A very exclusive thing. They were either in the ark and saved, or they were out of the ark and they were lost. We're either in Christ and we're saved because we were baptized in Christ for forgiveness of our sins, or we're out of Christ and we're lost. It's very exclusive, very simple. But just as the, the, the people got into the ark and they obeyed all that God said and they got into the safety net, as it were, they got into the ark, the water then separated them from the filth of the world and from the sins of the world corresponding to that baptism now saves you. We obey God when we get into Christ. And when we're baptized into Christ, it is the water, not saying special in the water, but a pledge of a good conscience because of our obedience. It is the water that separates us from our sins and the sinful world around us. Just like Peter said. So the question tonight for you is this. Do you believe what God said or not? That there is only one way to heaven, just one. And it's found in his word. Because if so, then you can respond, as it tells us in Acts 2, 37 through 47, you can repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And the moment that happens, God automatically adds you to that group of people. That group of people, Acts 2, 47. God adds you immediately once you are cleansed to that group of cleansed people, that group of saved people, that group of blood-bought people whom he did say is going to heaven. That church that belongs to his son, Jesus Christ. Would you be added to that one saved group that the word says is going? If you do so tonight, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.